0: So Bloomington police actually had two guns that matched an open homicide case in their evidence locker and destroyed them.
1: Snow Files, Episode 39, Ballistics Part 2. It's Shot Rocket Science. Q&A. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. We recently had a chance to preview the new podcast, What Happened at Braley Pond? Tam and Leslie, what did you think of it?
2: I absolutely loved this podcast. I thought it was a really good um, way to get people, you know, hooked on a new aspect of true crime right before Halloween. And I liked that aspect of it the most because that's how I got into all these podcasts. I remember as a true crime listener, I was listening to just documentary style podcasts And then um, I heard a bunch of Halloween episodes from Sword and Scale where they interviewed every other podcaster around here. And um, it was all spooky stories. So, you know, this is great. I love how they used the supernatural to now bring attention to a very young person. I think, I think he was a very young, it sounded like he was a very young who was, you know, brutally murdered. And I find the people who have been discussing it, like, kind of credible. I liked it.
3: I did too. I'm really excited about it. The host is Chris Moss and he's a very well-respected journalist. And, you know, you see these paranormal podcasts and sometimes they get kind of crazy and out there like Alex Jones-ish. It's just so interesting to me that this journalist is doing this story about this murder And then wrapping it into the paranormal because people have had sightings there and stuff. I just think that's the coolest premise just because it's so unique. I'm really excited about it. Now we listened to the first two episodes. Maybe we can talk them into letting us preview the ones that are coming up. So we'll be ahead because I don't want to wait, but I was listening to it while I was working and in the second episode, there is a stunning interview. Because, you know, you you listen to podcasts when you're working, you're just kind of like, ah, you know, and and you're kind of distracted and you're just listening to it. And then when that part came on, I was like, wait, wait, what? What did I lose? This is crazy.
2: We let him float out to about the middle of the lake and then we
0: go to leave. We're walking up the steps to leave. We thought he was dead. The whole time. It turns out, though, that did not kill Christopher he didn't even slit his throat he was holding the knife backwards and just left a few abrasions on Christopher's neck we're up at the top of the steps and we're ready to leave we hear the splash we turn around looking and he's swimming back into shore so we go back down there when we get back down there he's standing off the water he's shivering and shaking He's like what was that all this stuff so was being quiet. So I spoke up, I volunteered. I was like, look, that was just a test. See where your heart was at. Da, 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 da. Like I said, dude wasn't, he wasn't the sharpest tool in the shed. So I mean, you could pretty much tell him whatever and you believe it.
3: We're uh, very excited to be working with Chris. Bruce, what did you think of it?
1: Well, I think my thoughts are the same as yours, honestly. Um, I listened to it in the pretty much the same fashion, but I'm really looking forward to it. I think it's very well produced. And I think it's pretty unanimous here that we all highly recommend the the new podcast. Um, it's an interesting storyline to be sure. Um, I'm not sure I believe in all of it, but you know, I have an open mind and I look forward to listening to it.
3: So I think it's a perfect fit for Snow Files. I think our listeners would love what happened at Braley Pond, and, you know, as always, you could just download it on your favorite podcast player. You can also visit social media and look up what happened at Braley Pond. And the Chris Moss is the journalist who is hosting the show and telling that story.
1: Thanks for joining us for this week's Q&A segment where we dodge rabbit holes, slay inaccuracies, and untangle this web one fiber at a time. Let's get started. This episode started out with a story from 1997, where a man was shot in a telephone booth, and more than a year later, others were arrested for an unrelated crime the bullets were submitted to a database that matched the bullets to the phone booth murder. It makes me wonder why these bullets weren't submitted in 1999 before trial. Ray, do you remember when your department started
0: using computerized databases for ballistics? Computerized databases have been around a lot longer, a lot earlier than 1997. I mean, there are some references in in, in the reports we received on Jamie's where the bullets were Put into like an Illinois State Police database, assuming that those are linked up into the the FBI's databases, the information could have been put somewhere. We don't know exactly where it went, what they submitted. It's pretty much anybody's guess what Bloomington Police did.
3: So the the National IBIS database is is that all going into one place, or is that basically linking the local databases, or do you know? I'm
0: not sure. I mean, New Jersey would feed into, you had a state computerized system, and that fed in and would be linked over to the national system. I said, some of the reports says, one one of the reports on the examination of the bullets, there's a, there's a note about entering it into the Illinois data system. So I don't know if it was linked up to FBI. They all have their own requirements of how much information and that should be put in. If they had the information, I would assume it would go up to the national computers.
3: So on that report that you're referring to, I guess it was the Illinois State Police that that went through so were there any results or was it just that there were no hits or do you know? There were no hits. There were no hits on it. At the time? At the time. And we
0: can only assume that if it's in there, when they get more information, it's, it goes back and compares. I, I don't know how those those work. It would be a waste just to put information in and it never come back. You know, they, they never look at it to compare it with anything.
3: So with the APHIS database, it was like the fingerprints were deactivated. And do we know that this works the same way or not? Or this hasn't even been submitted into the national database. It was only the ISP at that time.
0: The note says about the ISP, yes, and that's it. And we don't know if it goes further. We don't know if it's continual. This is the bullet. So I mean, if somebody had another bullet, Submitted somewhere down the line, and it would have the same characteristics and stuff. Would it get a hit? I, I have to assume it would. It's hard to say that if somebody had a gun, then just to look at every 22 that goes through, that would be, I'm not sure they could have even accomplish that. But they have two bullets, and they have Little's bullet that says it's right hand twist, eight, eight lands and grooves or whatnot. And they got another bullet come in. Could the two of them be be compared microscopically? Then yes, but it's it's very generic the the description of of what Billy Little's bullets were. You know, it's out of a certain gun, so many uh, grooves and right hand twist, and a lot of bullets have the same thing. It's when they get down to the microscopic comparison of where scratch marks are. That's where where it would prove where, where the bullets. Were a match. Once data
1: is entered into that database, does it remain there forever, or does this database ever update to eliminate information that's no longer deemed necessary?
0: I would say it would be up to the agency to to pull information. This is solved; we don't need it in there anymore. Take it, take it out. Kind of like look at it as like a warrant. If if they put a warrant out for you, they put it in the in the database. It goes in the state and it goes in the national. Wanted files, the NCIC and, and SCICs. And when the person is apprehended, they send another message and it gets pulled out. That's no longer a valid warrant for that person. If Bloomington put it in or the Illinois State Police put it in and didn't send a notice that this case has been solved, I would assume they would be responsible for taking it out. But I mean, we all know that some people have, have not pulled out warrants for people and got picked up a couple times, it could happen.
1: And I do believe you've answered the next question about how bullets are compared in
0: layman's terms. Do we want to elaborate on
1: that any further?
0: What they're comparing, there's rifling down the barrel of a gun to make the bullet fly straight. Otherwise, a bullet would just tumble. And every gun has certain characteristics I mean some some have four lands and grooves there's like a raised ridge in a in a, a valley some have six, some have eight some have have, have more than that. some go to the right uh, I mean generally most of them go to the right. I think Colt may be the only gun that has a left hand twist and it is the the depth of these grooves and these lands and grooves, That's how they come up and say a bullet was fired from a a certain type of gun. Just like in the initial report for Littles, the state police came out and gave a list of a dozen different types of guns that have the same characteristic. I think it was six lands and grooves, right-hand twist, and it could have been made by that list of guns. I don't remember it off the top of my head. Everything else would be eliminated, you know. A gun with four lands and grooves could not have fired the bullet that killed Billy Little. Same with the gun with eight. It couldn't have fired it, you know. So that's why that's why you didn't see lists of like Smith and Wesson and stuff, because they have a different characteristic. Colts twist to the left. These twisted to the right. A Colt gun could not have fired this bullet that shot Billy Little.
1: But that goes to your point. We mentioned it in the podcast too. Then when you get down to the little scratches and all the little minute details, it comes down to an expert examination of the the gun, uh, microscopically. Correct.
0: Right. They have to take. They have a gun, and generically, maybe a Colt would make a left hand twist with eight lands and grooves. When you have that, you have the bullet. Now, if you have a gun to compare that to, they fire another bullet out of that gun, and just wear and tear on the rifling inside the gun is what gives the unique characteristics on the bullet that says, "Okay, this is a gun that fired that specific bullet." You can have a thousand different Colt guns, but each one would match up like, like a fingerprint. Everybody's fingerprint is is unique, and the lands and the the scratches and such that would appear when it went over like a a rough spot in the rifling, would make a specific mark on every bullet. And that's what they compare microscopically.
1: Leslie, we have heard a lot about the ballistics in this episode, but can you remind our listeners about the actual cause of death that occurred due to the bullets?
2: Well, we remember Bill was shot first with one bullet that went through the left shoulder, like right under his clavicle. And then it exited kind of on a diagonal and it went through his ribs, his left upper lung, his pulmonary artery, both atria of his heart. So it went through a diagonal and then hit both of the atria. And that's because the top of the heart is not you know, left, right, up and down, you know, it's already in there on an angle. So even though the bullet goes through an angle, it sliced through the heart, the top portion of the heart left to right. And then the next bullet went in kind of like near his uh, sternum um, in the area of his sixth rib. And it went in on less of an angle. And it went through both ventricles of the heart, which are, you know, closer together, left and right. And then the bullets did were collected from him and he you know he bled out in his in his chest cavity. So when you shoot somebody like that, their heart just loses all pressure and all pumping. So he died of his heart not working. And I think that trial they said it would have been within minutes from hemorrhage shock. So with that being said, these bullets were harvested from his body and in this episode we're looking at the ballistics as far as patterns go, but Tammy and Ray, have there ever been any other DNA removed or any other kind of evidence from these bullets since it's the only thing that we talked about belonged to the killer from the crime scene?
3: So when when Ray and I spoke with the DNA lab director, George Sciro out of Mississippi, he said that DNA from the perpetrator may be present, but that there would be so much of the victim's DNA that it would just basically take over the entire sample that you wouldn't be able to retrieve one small part from someone loading it compared to the whole DNA that's in that victim's body. That's how I understood it is that Is that how you understood it, Ray?
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously, uh, the suspect would have to put the bullet in the gun and handle it, so there would be his DNA on it at that point. But I said the bullets were recovered from Bill Little's body. So, I mean, his DNA, the blood and tissue and everything else, is going to be on top of the perpetrators.
3: But Jamie said that his attorney, Lauren, told him that the lab that they use has been successful in retrieving perpetrator DNA from bullets retrieved from a body. I don't know what that case is, but that would be amazing if that was something.
2: Well, also, these bullets are modified by hand, right? So the tips are cut off to make, you know, and we listen to that whole Media presentation about why somebody would do such a thing, so somebody spent a lot of time handling these and used other tools and things like that, so that would be really interesting how much DNA they left behind. That's a good
0: point. one thing towards that i mean if if they're filing off the tip of the bullet or cutting it off with a hacksaw, the tip of the bullet's probably like like a softer lead and stuff. they would be holding on to the the cartridge. More so when they're doing the work on the tip of the bullet, and remember, there's no; these were fired from a revolver, so there was no, there was no shell casings thrown out of a gun at the Clark Station.
2: That's a very good point. So they had another surface they were touching, and not this actual bullet. So it would just be dependent on if their sweat and oils got oh, right. on that bottom I mean- piece
0: yeah the bo- the bottom piece the cartridge that the, the bullet where where the powder is and where the primer is, and that the bullet is pressured into the, the brass, cartridge the is, brass is pieces what That's- handle, the brass piece yeah. yes
2: join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snowfiles Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout-out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button.
1: Ray, there were several local comparisons to the Bullets. I know you did a lot of work on that. Can you give an overview? And also, wasn't there something about a gun? being destroyed that was signed off by uh, state's attorney,
0: Tina Griffin? In our FOIA request about the well, about the whole case, we asked for the, the case files for the crime. And there were different reports in there from uh, other comparisons that were made and different guns. Most of them were, were kind of, it, it was kind of, like I said before, we have a description of a, of a certain guns that would fire this bullet. And I can never understand how, uh, one of the reports they submitted a BB gun. Well, we, we know he wasn't killed by a BB, so I don't know why the Bloomington Police would even be working on that part of it. But in our research, just to kind of come up with other suspects, like the Durbins and the Millers, and uh, we come across other crimes, and people were shot by a twenty-two. Uh, or people that were arrested with a twenty-two, and in one of the crimes, we found a guy that was arrested. He actually had a Roan, which is a German gun. That's one. Of the, that was the first gun that was listed on the Illinois exam. What they come up with, it could have been fired by this this German gun called a Roan, and they had one. He, this, he was arrested in nineteen ninety-five. So. This is an, an open homicide case on Bloomington's books in the, in McLean County. They took it from him. They had the gun. They put it into evidence. He went ahead with his crime. He was convicted of, of robbing, robbing a grocery store, and the gun is sits in evidence. The case is done. It's sitting in evidence yet, and um, eventually— I, I did a FOIA to find out what happened. Where's Where's the gun at now? And in the, the response to the request, we get the papers of that were submitted that the gun was destroyed by, and it's signed off. I mean, in, in New Jersey, we had to get the prosecutor to destroy evidence. Yeah, the case is done. Uh, You got to clean out the evidence lockers and such, and they have to have permission. And guns are sent to a certain place that would melt them down and get rid of them, destroy them. Drugs went somewhere else to an incinerator, stuff like that. So Illinois probably did the same thing, and they had to be signed off on approval of this. And the person that signed off on this is Tina Griffin. Now. Billy Littles was in 1991, and this gun was found in 1995. Common sense, I mean, this is, we're not talking Chicago where it had murders and more murders and all kinds of uh, information passing through, but I would think you would see the name of a Roan gun come through and you have a have an open homicide, say, let's test this. If nothing else, you could fire it and say it wasn't a gun and, and be confident of that. To add to that a little bit, the same list that they gave of all the guns, it was probably two dozen, three dozen guns were all destroyed at the same time at one on one approval. One was this Roan that I'm talking about with the with the robbery, but on on the same list there was a second one, a Roan 22 long rifle, and when. We get the case number and I looked that up. It was, couldn't get a whole lot of specifics on it, but it was a gun that was confiscated from a juvenile that was reported as a suspicious person walking down the street. So Bloomington police actually had two guns that matched an open homicide case in their evidence locker and destroyed them. We've checked and looked to see if they had policy to say before you destroy a weapon, you have it test fired or do some kind of a, a search on open cases, anything like that. They didn't have one that we found, or they didn't answer to my request. But uh, that's that's the point. They, they compared other guns, some that could have possibly been. I mean, they compared a couple of twenty twos, but from a different manufacturer, some they just wrote off. It says, oh, this couldn't have been the gun. Most troubling is they had they had possibilities. They had possibilities in their possession, and they didn't do it.
3: I just have one question on that, Ray. Is that Rome a unique gun to be found on the street, that type? or
0: I've never handled one. Like I said, I, I looked it up. It's a German-made gun, so it's, you know, twenty-twos are fairly cheap. Revolvers are pretty cheap. It's not a, it's a, it's a cheap gun.
3: <laughs> so just to clarify though, that these, just so nobody's confused, you cannot destroy evidence in Illinois in a homicide case. Um, and I I believe a rape case. I'm not sure, but I, I know for sure a homicide case, these guns were used in crimes that were not a homicide. And after a certain period of time, they are allowed to destroy that evidence just to clarify that they're not running around
0: Correct. Destroy. it wasn't a homicide case. the one gun it was the, right. that was the guy who robbed a Kroger grocery store and he had a roan gun. This is actually someone I talked to and we tracked it down. he he admitted to stealing the gun in Florida and is what where the gun came from the second gun that was there like i said it was a, it was a juvenile a group of three juveniles were called in and police went and they stopped them they searched them and that case was in 1994 so again both of the times they took these guns from people they had an open homicide case going on but one was a reporter's a suspicious persons and no other crime the juvenile was arrested for possession i assume but as you know juvenile records we couldn't get anything more than than the incident report and the other one these were properly destroyed like i said, it it puts it down that the case is done it was related to such and such a case then it's a signature of a state attorney and tina griffin signed off on him as we discussed in the podcast there was
1: out-of-state and international comparisons to the bullets. I found that to be pretty interesting. Is that a common practice in cases like this?
0: With bullets and other crimes, there's there's different reports go up. Like in Billy Little's case, they filed, a, it's a VICAP report. It's, it's it's run by the FBI. It's like a report for um, violent criminal apprehension program something like that and they put a report in it says okay we had them. we had a homicide and it's uh it's open we have a we have suspect or this is a possible suspect we have descriptions and they have information that was you know the, the victim was shot by a twenty two uh in a gas station and and that goes out and then other departments get those reports and can see and compare it. When, when the next department puts in the same kind of report, they compare it. Say, okay, well, in this one case here, it was Canada. Canada says, you know, we have a 22, somebody shot by a 22. Uh, the description of the suspect is, a, is similar, and they put the two agencies together. And then it goes from there. And they make a closer comparison about the crime. And, um, uh, Yes, I mean Canada responded to this. Other agencies that had uh, there was there was one in Indiana that that contacted. They had a gas station with a with a white male as, as a suspect, but that was supposedly a 22 also. That was over just in fact. Bloomington police sent an investigator over to that that department and compared the crime. Kind of in person, the Bloomington sketch artist actually made a composite for that other department.
3: So this is nothing unusual that being compared to all of these different states. These are just more or less hits from reports that are coming out that are similar. It just seemed really odd because, you know, as we talked about in the episode, that Blind River murders didn't have anything. As far as I know, the dude was never even out of Canada. He was in Canada, he stayed in Canada, he went to prison in Canada for other crimes. So it just seemed really, really weird to me. Even the Canadian police were like, why Why are you, con-? you know, <laughs> why do you think that this crime is related, I guess, is what, what the notes said. So it just seemed really odd. But you're saying that that's not unusual to get out-of-state hits like that. No, because if, if, like...
0: Washington or somebody, some other state, put in that they had a gas station robbery and somebody was shot with a twenty two or somebody even a, a shooting. They all get the when the reports hit the computer and the computer compares, you know, similarities. It was a young guy. It was a gas station. It was a gun. I don't know what the uh, algorithm is that that makes the hit pop up and sends the message to Bloomington and. Washington, but there's some certain similarities, and then the cops on the street match them up. Okay, well, there's no way this was the same person. Mine was a white juvenile, and yours was a an old black guy. So there's no comparison, and then it's that part's done. But they've got the the information goes in, and there's some kind of similarities that that generates these hits.
1: You know, as we uh, discussed in the podcast. We obtained through FOIA requests um, the newsreel, and there was a lot of interesting stories in there. What do we make about all that?
3: I just think that that was odd. I, it. Would have to be related to the bullets, and I was just wondering if they're if they're thinking that those are rhino the rhino bullets. I, I couldn't see any other stories that seemed related to it, but it, you know, I, I guess maybe they just sent they asked for that story, and they sent them a reel that had different stories on it do y'all agree that it would have to be related to the rhino bullets
2: yeah i think they were trying to educate themselves on why this would happen and you know if they could get any other leads from it because it is a really bizarre thing that some gas station robbery somebody would go through that extent if those are meant to be hurting people who are wearing body armor why would somebody use them at a gas station? So maybe they were just like racking their brains. I do remember Truth and Justice talked about this and had the same conundrum, like why would somebody do something like that, like a, a street criminal? And um, I think that they surmised that somebody like showing off that learned about this technique and was like, oh, well, I'm just going to do it too. So maybe the police were just perplexed and you know, wanting to find out why someone would do that.
0: Like we said, the, the bullets had been manipulated. They took the tip off the bullet. It makes it do more damage when it hits somebody.
3: That's all. And that just leads me to think that it would have to be that there was an intent there.
2: Right. It it changes the motive because you go from somebody who's like a a scatterbrain just doing a gas station robbery gone bad to now all of a sudden somebody who's carries around bullets to hurt people and kill people
1: there was a lot more thought put into it than just going to rob a gas station. Leslie, can you go over the evidence requirements for the Illinois Post-Conviction Act?
2: Yeah. So it first states that the evidence that you want to be tested has to be secured in relation to the trial, which resulted in conviction. So as I read these, we have to check them all off and think about whether this is true for Jamie's case. So You listeners, that'll be the test here. So um, the evidence was not subject to the testing, which is now requested at the time of trial or can be subjected to new testing, not scientifically available at the time of trial that provides a reasonable likelihood of more prohibitive results.
3: That's true, right, because they haven't been run through the national database and that there are many, many, many more images in that database at this time. So right. that's a check. That's a check.
2: Next one has to be that the identity was the issue in the trial, which resulted in conviction. <laughs> I think we've proved to people over and over again that this is about issues with identity. The next is the chain of custody is sufficient to establish that the evidence to be tested has not been substituted, tampered with, replaced, or altered in any material aspect. Next is testing has the potential to produce new non-cumulative evidence materially relevant to the defendant's assertion of innocence.
3: I think this is important. Notice that it says the potential, not it's going to prove Jamie innocent, which is what over the years, over and over, each state's attorney has argued that it's not going to prove his innocence. It's not going to prove his innocence. It has the potential to produce it. And that's all you have to prove um, according to the Illinois Post-Conviction Act, And it's a really critical point, and everybody needs to understand that point, because constantly people say it's not going to prove the innocence. And what it really does, it says materially relevant to the defendant's assertion of innocence. It needs to create a lead, maybe an alternative suspect. That's what it's saying. It could potentially link to someone else.
2: Right. The next is that the requested testing, so the new testing that we want done, employs a scientific method generally accepted within the relevant scientific community. And um, last is that there's been reasonable notice of the motion served upon the state. So, I mean, I think that we check every single one of these boxes, but other people will be deciding it, and that's up for listeners to decide too i guess
1: well obviously based on that list uh he meets the requirements i mean it's it's pretty obvious to me i would assume listeners that went off and checked on that list would come to the same conclusion
2: right i just hope we did a good job explaining it in in these two seasons and they would come to that without having to do their own research again i would hope that it would just jump out as yes 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 based on our presentation.
1: Oh, absolutely. When when we discuss these 8,000 missing documents that is related to the recent court ruling, what are the thoughts on any information related to ballistics that we can find in these documents?
3: I would think only because this is coming from some of these documents, many of these documents are coming from the ISP. We know we didn't get that many documents, Ray, that, that it would have to be included as far as if if they did put it in another database, if there, maybe there was a hit, maybe, you know, we have no idea. Are you thinking, Ray, that maybe there's something there?
0: We, we don't know exactly what will come out of all of them. Like you said, they may have gotten a notice that there's another possibility of a hit on on a bullet or anything else that wasn't revealed to us. I mean, I don't think any of the discovery that they got originally about some of these other crimes. I'm not sure that's going to appear in there. I mean, that's that was on our research that we were looking for other suspects. That uh, who who knows what else? You know, some of the stuff that we got dealt with, with Durbin and Miller. I mean, those are other suspects. And they had looked at their weapons. So there is that. But we have other people that, that we came up with. They shot a, a store clerk and with a twenty-two. It was a, a different kind of gun. But I don't know if they ever tested those people's weapons, made any other comparisons. All that could be in there
3: that would be interesting because there's no follow up to that there's no that was one where a girlfriend came forward and said that that they admitted you know, that, to doing it that they admitted to doing it and they were known to use weapons and had actually shot people and there's just no follow up there's no interview of them or anything that's the kind of things that we're hopeful, really hopeful to find in these documents. Well, that too, and that that, uh, Lauren is uh,
0: a lot more thorough than uh, O'Reilly and uh, Pistol were.
3: (laughs) Absolutely.
1: We invite any witness featured on the Snow Files podcast to come on the show, to give their point of view, or to clarify anything that they think might have been misstated
2: if you have any information that may help jamie please call the tip line at 888-710-SNUB there is a ten thousand dollar reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of jamie snub the tip line is free and confidential